What's the true meaning of Pelosi's trip to Taiwan? I think I cracked the code. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. But before we get to today's Deep Dive, I want to thank my secret admirer for telling Jim Brewer about me. And I think spurring an invitation onto the Bruniverse, Jim Brewer's podcast. It was incredibly fun. He's such a nice guy, so funny. And that video is going to come out on his YouTube channel today, the Bruniverse. I'm super excited, and I would love it if you would go watch it over there, give it a thumbs up, show him some love for sending us some love. And uh, I'm just, I was really complimented and grateful. So thank you. I don't know who it was though. Also, if you want to hear this show right now, commercial free and all previous shows, Deep Dives commercial free, go to Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform, subscribe and leave a review. And if you want all my stuff and Brad's stuff commercial-free, join Rockfin, rockfin.com slash propaganda report. And if you want to support my work, please donate under the support tab at monicasdeepdives.com. I'm redoing that website so I have a place to live. And I do have a donate button there. Okay, now let's climb onto the dive platform, platform courtesy of the Wall Street Journal. And let's hit it with Pelosi visits Taiwan defying China. Pelosi visits Taiwan defying China. Wow. It sounds like she's throwing the gauntlet down or creating a geopolitical incident, bringing us to the brink of war. It's, there's been a lot of hype around that, and all the mainstream media is pointing to that. Left and right, there's a big stink. But that's the gist of it. Now, it was very significant that she went to Taiwan. China told her not to do it. The last time a House speaker went to Taiwan was Newt Gingrich in 1997. But in my opinion, it was Trump who really broke the ice in a much bigger way. Do you remember this phone call he had with the, I guess it was the president of Taiwan? I think it's the same chick who's the president that Pelosi met with. But Trump had a call with her on December 2nd, 2016. He was only the president-elect. He hadn't even been inaugurated yet. It was the first time since 1979 that a U.S. president or president-elect spoke directly with the president of Taiwan, which actually at the time I think was still called the Republic of China, and some people still call it that. It was a much bigger deal uh, when things have changed a lot because Ike— President Eisenhower went over in 1960 and like there were, I think, 500,000 people lining the streets to greet him. But this Pelosi thing was actually rather low key. She flew in at 11 o'clock at night. She left 18 hours later (laughs) and made a whole huge stink, an international dust up. And it just seemed like it was pretty pointless. She said It was in an effort to show her support for democracy over authoritarianism, which can't be true (laughs) because that's just ideological stuff, which I'm sure she is so far beyond ideology at this point. I think that's pretty clear. But the talking points were the same on the right and the left, I think, pretty much, which was, uh, as Tucker Carlson's video was titled, Pelosi's Totally Pointless Trip to Taiwan— 
And The Atlantic had a line in their article about it, citing the trip's symbolic nature. So they're both saying there was no real point, that this was just about something. And for me, I find that hard to believe. So I wanted to think a little harder about that, and I did. And I'll tell you what I think the actual point of it was. But first, I want to just give you like a two-minute intro to the subject of Taiwan and kind of how I think about Taiwan. So when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, my father was really horrified when President Carter abandoned the Republic of China, as my father would say. My father was very concerned about the spread of communism. He said that we had offered them our protection as the government in exile when the communists took over China. He boycotted China till the day he died. He said it was communist slave labor. Now, <laughs> the problem is that, from what I understand, the Kuomintang, who was in charge in the Republic of China for decades after that, was an unfair, murderous, and dictatorial regime. Now, I'm getting this out of just my research, like wiki stuff. So it could be totally wrong. But there have been reparations and apologies and democracy only hit there in, I think, the 90s, maybe, or the 80s. And right, so I'm not like the hugest fan of democracy. I don't believe in mob rule. I do agree with Vitell's law of nations, which informed our founders and our country that people basically have the right to determine their own government. They do. And now for me, I would draw a distinction between what's a state and what's a government. My household has a government, and it may actually have a territorial monopoly on the use of force, but force is never used in this house. But just you get the idea. Like, is it the state? Is it a top-down use of force? Or is it like a government, a tribal elder? I don't know. I don't, you know, those are different ways to look at government. And I do believe that there's, government or society is self-ordering, maybe would emerge organically, a kind of voluntary thing. People get exiled when they don't fit in, that kind of stuff. But we see that there are nation states, and I'm not going to fight that battle right now. So when you have a nation state, how do you determine whether it's a valid government or not? In this case, we're saying, is China entitled to take over Taiwan or is Taiwan entitled to remain independent? And I guess I would say if there was a near unanimous referendum with almost everyone participating like there was in Crimea, I would say, yes, when they basically every single person begged Russia to take them <laughs> under Russia's protection. And of course, Russia wanted to do it because most of the people there kind of belonged to Russia because it was a big port. It's like San Diego. It's is where the Navy is. So that made complete sense if you if you're going to accept any nation state at all. And I'm going to I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt right now. So if if Taiwan is basically like that, if they are making a near unanimous decision to not be a part of China, then I accept that. And then I don't think China has a right to go in there. And I think they they do. I think that is how it is. And the election recently, the last election, had a 75% turnout and 57% of the popular vote went to the one who won. So... If you have 75% turnout, that sounds like it's the people accept the elections as legitimate. If it was 35%, I would say maybe not. If it was 95%, I would smell a rat. But that seemed about right. And then there, uh, I was reading a poll from 2021 from the university there. So, I mean, I just, how can you evaluate? But it says that 
basically a third of the people were in favor of the status quo and just not doing anything like declaring independence from China or unifying with China, which could go either way. You could unify with China under China, or you could unify under China, with China under the Republic of China vision, which is Taiwan takes back control of China. That doesn't seem likely. But a third of the people said they didn't even want to decide on that right now. A third of them said they never want to decide on it. So that's two-thirds saying they support the status quo anyway. And then almost all of the rest supported the status quo, but want to move gradually towards independence. And then, and then like, you know, less than 10% seem to want to do some kind of um, unification. At the most, it looks more like 6 or 7% for unification. So basically, almost everybody likes the status quo. They're separate from China. Some people want to go out and say that they're independent from China, and some people want eventually to unify. But most people want either the way it is or to be um, declare independence. But that would actually be kind of sticky because if they do declare independence, that triggers action in China to kind of retaliate and... I mean, I could get into the nuances of all the cascading laws that have come down over the years that govern that kind of thing. Basically, the no waves policy would be what the people want. And what what happened was, if you don't know, during World War II, Taiwan, which is like a couple of islands, I think, including Formosa, if I recall correctly, I should look that up. That uh, Japan had control of that. They relinquished control without saying whether they were relinquishing it to the republic that was the Republican go government that was there or the communist government of the mainland. They didn't say what who they were relinquishing it to. And what was actually in Taiwan was this kind of republic government in exile as Mao was in charge of the mainland or the communists were in charge of the mainland. Now, Truman agreed to defend Taiwan, and that went all the way through to Carter, who stopped saying they would actually physically defend Taiwan and just gave them arms. And that's when my father started tweaking. And uh, and here's an interesting wrinkle. When I was on the History Homos podcast recently, just last Monday, you can go back and look at it. I think it was on there that William of England told me that uh, the CIA was like, the, their first outpost was in Taiwan and they're still super active in Taiwan. So I started to try to track that down. It wasn't easy to find that. I didn't really find it in so many words. But so I started thinking about like the defense industry and the military industrial complex and how do they play a hand in Taiwan? Do they still? So I discovered in this process that more than half of their economy is one company. It's a company founded by a guy named Morris Chang. He's He was an MIT graduate, although he didn't get his PhD there because I think it, the article about him said he failed twice his doctoral thesis thing. So I don't know if he was lazy or wasn't paying attention. I don't know. But ultimately, he worked for Texas Instruments, which is a defense contractor. And then he founded the world's largest semiconductor company in Taiwan. It's certainly the largest. It does like 90 or 95 percent of all the advanced semiconductors in the world. But I think it may also be the largest semiconductor company in the world. And th this guy founded it in Taiwan. It's called TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And it not only is such a huge company on the world stage, but it makes up the majority, well over half of the economy of Taiwan. Wow. So I thought that kind of 
supported William of England's, certainly didn't take support away from his idea about the CIA presence there. But get this. So I see that. And then I'm reading the journal, and all of a sudden the article I was reading took on a whole new, something much more interesting to me, a new light. Pelosi was in Taiwan for 18 hours, 18 hours total, including sleeping. And she spent basically what appears to be most of her waking hours, or at least most of her business hours, talking to, wait for it, TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, and some time with Pegatron, which is another semiconductor company over there. So I'm like, okay, hmm. Then I see that she's wearing a blue sash. She's wearing blue, like teal blue, and a teal blue sash. So she got this medal, the Order of Propitious Clouds, one of very few people get this medal. Chiang Kai-shek got it. His wife got it. The only other person, the only civilian who's ever gotten that medal, Morris Chang. So again, like another arrow, another thread I'm pulling on gets us to TSMC. So I had been, my working idea behind Pelosi's trip before I found any of this stuff was, and you have to understand, like, I don't, I, I'm not an expert in any specific thing. Like you, you've listened to my show. I don't know about semiconductors. I don't know about this industry, but as a voter, as somebody who, who this is going to impact, I feel like I should be able to get enough information about this to be an informed, uh, have an informed opinion or the government should, cannot consider itself an extension of me cannot consider itself a representative government. So I do venture into this. And uh, sometimes I start with a theory. And my theory here was, why is she going over there? 18 hours. It makes no sense. It's causing a dust up. It probably puts her in slight physical danger. And it really reminded me of when McCain used to do these things. Like all of a sudden you hear, or like John Brennan, like, oh, he had this secret trip to Ukraine. Had this secret trip to the Middle East. Wait, is that um, the head of uh, you know, ISIS with him? Like, what? Al-Baghdadi, is that what? So you see these little trips, and I always think that those trips are about communicating on the ground one-on-one -on -one so it can't be picked up on a phone call or whatever. Like, it's a face-to-face. -face. Either it's important to have a face-to-face -face thing because you need to look each other in the eye, or you want to get personal credit for brokering a deal, or you just don't want to be monitored, or you don't, you know, obviously in this case, she would want the world to know. So I was thinking either she wants to send a message to China, which some people are saying, or she wants to literally deliver an actual message to somebody over there without being surveilled. That's why I was interested in who she was meeting with. So once I realized how much time she spent with the semiconductor people and how integrated that was to the overall country and the history of it and where this guy came from, MIT and Texas Instruments and all that, then I figured that was the real point of the trip was to re meet with TSMC. Then I see that, you know, I'm assuming that people listening don't know all this already. People who know it are probably like, well, obviously. But this, I didn't know anything about the Chips and Science Act Congress just passed. Was that on the front page of the Wall Street Journal anytime recently? Maybe. Maybe I missed it. But I wasn't really like that concerned about it. But it just passed to the point where it hasn't even been signed yet. It's going to be signed by Biden on the 9th of August. So maybe she wanted to slide in there 
before it did make the front page. Maybe that's when it'll make the front page. I don't know. But I have some passages here from the good articles I found on Bloomberg and the New York Times about this thing. It says, uh, so there's this massive amount of federal grant money. And it's, I think it's like the whole Chips and Sciences Act is $280 billion. And 50 plus billion of it is meant to what they're touting it as subsidizing domestic chip manufacturers. But a lot of this money is supposed to go to Intel, TSMC, and South Korea's Samsung, all of whom are now or which are now building chip fabrication facilities worth tens of billions of dollars in the U.S. So I know TSMC is poised to build one in Arizona. So the the quote from the article is, the sprawling bill Congress finally passed last week, the Chips and Science Act, gives the federal government a primary role in deciding which chip makers will benefit from the legislation's funding. The bill contains $52 billion in subsidies and tax credits for any global chip manufacturer that chooses to set up new or expand existing operations in the United States, along with more than $200 billion towards scientific research in areas like artificial intelligence, robotics, and quantum computing. So like I said, TSMC has the advanced chips. Now, one of the, one of the restrictions on taking that money is that they're not allowed to take the money if they build out manufacturing facilities in China for advanced chips. So they can continue to make legacy chips there. They could even build manufacturing for legacy chips there, I think, like old things for cars and stuff, not for this advanced stuff, or for stuff that's, that's only going to be used in the China mar- Chinese market for Chinese use. So that's a pretty big restriction. And... Some of the chip makers, like Intel, weren't actually in favor of this. And they feel like they're, they are better served by actually building in China, by partnering with China. China has big money. They're a big market. They could share technology. They could get subsidies to develop more technology. And I did see an article that said that this looks like a good plan, but over the long term, it will actually hurt our competitive position. Now, I don't know if that argument was based on just the fact that like just from normal economics, when you subsidize an industry and guard it from competition, you are going to keep it from really having efficiencies. I don't know. Like this kind of tech is just so huge. I don't even know how to think about it. I assume the the basic principles do still apply. And the other thing is that it may force China to be absolutely, totally independent in this much faster than it otherwise would. Kind of the way financial sanctions on Russia drove Russia and China together, accelerated their central bank digital currency or other kind of plans to become independent of the dollar. So there's definitely some possible nuances here. I'm not 100% sure this is what you see is what you get, that they're just subsidizing U.S. chip manufacturers. Why would they just subsidize U.S. chip manufacturers and not even have the manufacturers want it? Well, I mean, a couple of reasons spring to mind. The big customers of these, Apple is a really big customer of some of these chip manufacturers. They probably want the manufacturing in the U.S. And they like it to be subsidized, of course. So they like the arm twisting, which is what it is, maybe because of the supply chain stuff. Maybe they want to be insulated from supply chain disruptions. And that, of course, like for sure, if that's the reason, then I would say that the purpose of the perfect storms of 
supply chain issues around chips during the lockdown period was manufactured. Because I said, it was like, there's something wrong with this story. Like, this doesn't make sense. There are redundancies in these systems. Their perfect storms are BS. And so uh, there was definitely a reason they were emphasizing the chip thing. And I always knew, like, even the Huawei stuff, like, they said, oh, it was a national security issue. We have to slap down Huawei. I was like, it's probably just an industry thing. It's probably just they want to favor one player over another. And I guess... I don't know if Intel objecting was really genuine or not, but I would assume that there is a beneficiary like Apple. There's also the beneficiary of the fact that this stuff is going to now be in control of these bureaucrats who will benefit from it for sure. To that point, here's another quote. It remains to be seen how efficiently the U.S. funds will be spent. The disbursement of tens of billions of dollars in the coming years is likely to raise many questions about how those investments are allocated, and it may touch off more jostling among semiconductor companies that spent more than $20 million on lobbying in the first half of this year alone, according to their own disclosures. So that was very interesting to me, because if they're spending that kind of money lobbying, $20 million in return, maybe for $20 billion, for all I know, because that Arizona plant, I think, is supposed to be cost like $20 billion, well... TSMC can't go to Nancy's office without people noticing that something's going on there, right? But if she goes to them and acts like it's some, you know, creates all this international mystery and fear around it and has people using it as a political football, boy, that is some way to take the eye off the ball. And the fact that nothing I read in the mainstream media points to the fact that she spent most of her waking hours talking to semiconductor companies within a week of this, uh, all this money being on the table, I would have to say that they're deliberately leaving that out. Also, there is a chance that <laughs> came at the perfect time for her to draw attention away from her husband's DUI hearing this week. That could be it. Anyway, they are saying that this this gives the U.S. federal government a lot of control over the worldwide semiconductor advanced chip industry. And I, you know, that could be for a variety of reasons, just these guys being totally corrupt. It could be for real military industrial complex stuff. I think the defense industry is in favor of it. So maybe it's not Apple, which I guess like Big tech is a sister or daughter of the defense industry anyway, but it could be like that. Like they want it for the robotics, like for all the stuff that they're working on for like super war, future war, whatever. I don't know. No, but the idea that this is just a Democrat thing or Nancy Pelosi thing, it definitely isn't. That Huawei stuff, slapping them down, has been going on for administration after administration. Trump opened the door with that phone call to Taiwan before he was even president. And he, I remember this, the, he pressured the Dutch not to give this cutting-edge etching technology to China. And TSMC, that's their thing. That's their, it's that, um, wafer, I guess it's the wafer etching, the chip manufacturing at that level of the most advanced stuff. Trump kept it from getting into the hands of China. And I think that Nancy Pelosi is you know, coming in over the top and getting the subsidies to TSMC. And who knows if all these politicians get a little payola for it. I really don't know. Carrots and sticks, I'm sure, are at work when you deal with what the politicians are up to. So China does not like this, obviously, 
They don't like uh, the act. They don't, they call it unfair trade practices. Now, they are reputed to be engaging in unfair trade practices, stealing patents, subsidizing industry. And I mean, I'm just going to assume that that's true. They certainly subsidize industry. But it's funny because their position is turnabout is fair play. So they, in two ways did they do this. They said... And this is something they've said before, and I've always found it confusing, but they said, I think this time again, they said, we will assert our right to protect our territorial integrity, which is this expression I think Obama invented because that goes, flies right in the face of a human being's individual rights to self-determination. So territorial integrity means like the larger entity can keep the smaller entity under its control even if the people living there, like Crimea, unanimously do not want to be a part of that other entity. So Obama was using it as an excuse for Ukraine to forcibly maintain possession of Crimea. So these guys said, we will maintain our our territorial integrity by taking Taiwan back. But they said also, basically, if you play with fire, you're going to die by fire, something like that. I couldn't find the exact correct transliteration, but it was something like that. And I thought it was interesting because they're talking about, so after she left and even before they were doing some hostile stuff, one thing they did was they told Taiwan they could no longer export fruit to China and China would no longer export sand to Taiwan, which is, I guess, more important than I had realized. It is actually becoming a very important commodity, they say. But when, in addition, China put a bunch of ships around Taiwan and did some exercises, and I think, you know, blew off some rockets and stuff. And it looks like it's a military thing, but the impact of that would be um, a big problem that they're worried about is that it would be restraint of trade, that it would literally physically blockade the ships from going in and out. Maybe that was uh, muscle flexing on their part to say, hey, we will fight fire with fire. If you want to mess with trade, we will mess with trade. And this is in our backyard. We can do it. They don't even have to invade Taiwan. They don't even have to take over Taiwan and TSMC, although that's, I guess, you know, a threat. That seems very, very major. In one of the articles I was reading, I think it was the New York Times article that said the production of many advanced semiconductors in Taiwan has become, for many, an untenable security threat because Taiwan is increasingly under risk of invasion. So I don't know if that's true, if they are really... And it goes on to say these semiconductors are necessary to power key technologies, including quantum computing, the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence and fighter jets, as well as mundane items like cars, computers and coffee makers. I think those ones are not at issue here. I think as far as preventing more chips, I think those are okay. or they're going to let China do that. They just don't want them to have the advanced stuff. But the advanced stuff, see, that's why I keep thinking it's about defense, because the advanced stuff is is like the robots, the AI, even nuclear power stuff is uh, dependent on these advanced chips. The U.S. is saying that if Beijing has access to this stuff, that would be a security risk. But China was saying that Pelosi's visit was a provocation. So is she provoking them? I mean, these things, these questions, it's not crystal clear to me the answers yet. This is the kind of stuff where you only figure it out after it unfolds. But however it unfolds, my guess is, Chances are they are having it unfold the way they want it to. So 
this TSMC is the exclusive supplier of Apple's silicon processors for iPhones and Mac PCs, as well as the manufacturing partner of other companies like Advanced Micro Devices, Broadcom, Qualcomm. And, oh, it says that the Arizona fabricating facility is only $12 billion. But it makes, until that's built, most of the stuff is made in Taiwan. So, you know, I go back and forth. Are they looking for a provocation? Are they undermining things? I think I'm going to come out on the fact that Nancy wants to go over there and get the credit for brokering this deal, for giving the money to TSMC. I'm sure she gets some, or I assume she gets some of their their, uh, lobbying money, but she's in San Francisco. Apple's in her backyard. So I have to figure that she's really doing it for them and perhaps... They were the main beneficiaries of the entire $50 billion of the Chips and Science Act. And it is kind of weird. Like, Biden told Pelosi not to go publicly, and China's like, yeah, we'll stop her then. It's like, I can't stop her because there's a separation of powers here. Because Biden was always in bed with the Chinese. So I, maybe maybe there is even infighting there. Like, maybe Pelosi is just so much more powerful than Biden that she's like, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And Hunter's little investment in this Chinese financial organization, and maybe Hunter was just so out of line that, that Biden's lost all juice. I'm assuming Pelosi's much more powerful than Biden, although Biden got all that Ukraine money. I don't know. So I don't know who's more powerful, but I don't think that they're actually like he Biden did say that he would defend Taiwan if it came to that, if it came to blows. And I believe he would. I don't think that they are going to allow China to take Taiwan unless they really are trying to undermine this country. And I, but I was thinking, like, even to the extent that China might want to cut a deal with Taiwan, which they do, like Hong Kong, where it would be two systems, one country. That's the thing with Hong Kong. And I think the people in Hong Kong are kind of okay with it because those protests were, seemed to me, manufactured by the National Endowment for Democracy, which is definitely a military intelligence front or a U.S. intelligence front. So I feel like maybe I was always wondering why we were in there doing those protests in Hong Kong. And I think maybe it was for propaganda in Taiwan to tell them that they shouldn't accept the two system, one country thing. Because people in Hong Kong or people over here from Hong Kong who I knew were like, those people are crazy. They have got it made. You know, what's going to happen in China if they lose that system, they're just going to get absorbed into China. So that whole thing seemed crazy to me. Anyway, so uh, I spent all day, like a whole day, really digging into all this stuff. I hope it was coherent. I hope it made sense. I really think that the Pelosi thing was about this semiconductor, whatever. And I didn't look at other podcasters. I didn't look at other news analysts. I didn't look at my tweets, although I asked people like what they thought until I was completely finished. And I have got to say, my tweets are so smart. <laughs> I'm just telling you, if you don't follow me on Twitter, follow me on Twitter. And just like the, we, when we talk to each other, that's where it's so interesting because I am shadow banned. You have to come to my like place to, it's not going to show up in your feed. Anyway, so let me read you some of these tweets I got, like so ahead of it. Gary Goodwin. So the question was, why did Pelosi go to China? What was uh, to Taiwan? What was the real reason there? So he writes, Gary says, to stir the pot with China, to finish some secret deal that brings fortune to herself and her family. Bingo. 
or just a reason to waste more taxpayer money because she can while we're in a recession. That was so good. And then Native Sun 33 says, to give China the opportunity to creep closer to war, yes, maybe, Ukraine is used as an excuse to shut down energy in the West and blame it for inflation. Taiwan could be used to cut the West off from technology. So he's saying she's undermining us. World War III is already in full effect. Russia, China, East Bloc to be built up. I feel like it's Cold War II, but hey, I don't, I'm not for sure. Philip Zazaro says, just one more day away from her drunken husband and his increasing public shaming. <laughs> Could be true. Gibbs Fender says, because Taiwan produces more than two-thirds of the world's microchips. Like, yes, thank goodness I didn't look at that before I did my homework because I have to go into the homework without a preconceived notion. I'm not there trying to prove something. I'm there trying to figure it out with an open mind. Uh, so, but I agree with you. And then King Cole says TSMC deal, like very simply, obviously. And that, <laughs> King Cole wrote that like eight hours ago. <laughs> So it took King Cole one second to figure out what it took me all day. I appreciate that, though. But it made me feel like I was probably right. And then Kitty Crusader says to push the Thucydides trap. Like, what the hey is the Thucydides trap? Well, it is a term popularized by American political scientist Graham Allison to describe an apparent tendency towards war when an emerging power threatens to displace an existing great power as a regional or international hegemon. That reminds me of that Mark Faber article I've talked about before where he said when you have an, a superpower declining and another one rising, the declining one is going to want to embrace the military outcome and the rising one is going to want to embrace the economic dominant outcome. Like they, they want the field of battle to be military and economic respectively. So it could be that we're actually trying to provoke them. So in this aftermath, when China blew off a rocket or whatever, in this, I guess, Taiwan Strait or whatever it's called, Nancy said, I think she accused Xi of saber rattling. But I, I thought I'm just going to take this opportunity to catch you up on just a couple of other things that were in the news. The, I guess, Osama bin Laden's partner in Al-Qaeda Zawahiri was supposedly killed with no collateral damage, standing on a balcony where a Hellfire missile struck him and only him. The Pentagon supposedly knows nothing about it, and the CIA is taking credit. Okay, that's the official story. So immediately when I saw that, I was like, okay, those guys were all in on it. Like, those guys worked for the U.S. They, they watched Charlie Wilson's war. They, Haqqani Network, the Taliban, Osama's, Afghans, they were all U.S. operatives, especially the original ones. So this guy definitely was an operative. So either he knew too much and they wanted to get rid of him, or he was dead already, or dying, or died of natural causes, or somebody else killed him and we wanted to take the credit. And I found, so I Googled this guy's name prior to January 2022, just to see the last time he was in the news, what was going on with him. And it was a report from April 2021 which I'll put it in the show notes, saying, uh, we think this guy died in November 2020, so we're just waiting to see who's taking over leadership. So clearly the guy was, well, I think the guy was already dead, especially since that was one of my working theories, and that the reason they did that was to just take credit for it, an opportunity to flex muscle or whatever. Like, why? You can't, don't let a good opportunity go to waste, right? Uh, in other news, 
So I think it cracked the code on something else. Griner, the WNBA chick over in Russia who got arrested and now tried for marijuana possession or THC possession, she was convicted and sentenced to nine years. But I think I cracked the code on that as well because the deal they're trying to cut was to get her and another guy who's over there in prison, Paul Whelan, out in exchange for a Russian prisoner we have, okay? But the Russian prisoner we have is called the Merchant of Death. <laughs> so, because he's a really bad Russian guy, and I think he is an arms dealer maybe, but definitely not a sympathetic character. He's been in our jail since 2008. There's no way we would just be like, oh yeah, give him back for Paul Whalen, who I think is probably a spy. So you're like, hey, he was over there. He was caught. We can't give a guy called the Merchant of Death back to Russia. Like that would probably not be a popular thing to do. But if you're going to trade the Merchant of Death for a spy and an intersectional groundbreaker with an anxiety disorder, like that is a way more sympathetic story. So I think the whole Griner thing was about getting Paul Whalen back. And also, monkeypox was declared a national health emergency. And I have to say, I did a deep dive on monkeypox when there were 90 cases, I believe maybe 90 cases in the world, which is absolutely, positively no chance, statistically significant, absolutely not. There have to be 90 misdiagnosed cases or never diagnosed, and why would all of a sudden people start diagnosing it? It just seemed like they were absolutely setting us up for this thing to explode without good cause. And of course it, it is. So anyway, that's all I got for today. It's a lot jam packed and uh, just a little, you know, takeaway for me when I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but remember what, you know, my father's position on this. And I was thinking like, and even to this day, uh, you know, my mother doesn't buy anything from China. She does not buy things from China. They have always boycotted because they considered it a communist country that uses slave labor and it just made me think that, you know, my father always said that if you have a strong set of values, very clear, any issue that comes up, you just analyze it against your values. So he could make decisions pretty quickly. And really, now I'm not 100% positive if he was right about Taiwan. I guess he was, but it doesn't seem like the kind of regime he would really have liked. He didn't say that the Republic of China had a good regime. He just said the communists took over and that was wrong. So he did not support that, and he did support the Taiwan government. And I think that, that he was right. Or I should say, I admire, I respect that he took positions of principle, regardless of what was popular. And I feel like if you can see an objective truth, whether that is objectively crystal clear, right or wrong or not, you know, you can decide yourself. But if you can see an objective truth that's right or wrong— have the courage of your convictions. I mean, my dad was often like the only person with a certain position because we lived in New York and it was very liberal. But I think over time you might be vindicated. And even if there is no clear and objective truth, don't go with the flow. Don't take a position, even if, you know, if you don't really know what the position, what, what's a strong position, just go with the trend. It's a bad idea because you're probably not going to be able to get ahead of the winds of change. And even if you could, <laughs> my father would say, 
don't be a fart in a windstorm. So even if you can keep up with the winds of change, do not be a fart in the windstorm. I'm Monica Perez. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show.